Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we sang, show us Christ. Show us Christ. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. I pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself through your word. Help me as I bring it. I pray that you would help us all as we receive it. And I pray, Father, you'd be glorified in our lives as we live it out. For your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am excited for Molly Claire and for Abel and Gelden. This is a day that they will remember their whole life long. This is the day when they drove a stake deep in the ground and said, I belong to Jesus. Let all know that I belong to him. And I am thankful for godly parents who understand that their job isn't just to raise good citizens, as important as that is, their job is to make disciples. And uh, the gospel matters. And so uh, we're going to see that truth in this passage. So I would encourage you, if your Bible is not open to 2 Timothy 4, go ahead and open it up now. And uh, let's look at it together. If you knew you were dying, what unfinished business would you want to take care of? What things would you want to put in place that would survive you? Those are the sorts of questions that become important to us when we realize our time is running out. And here in 2 Timothy, we see Paul as a man who knows he is dying. He has been in some close scrapes before, but never like this. He was stoned in Lystra and left for dead. He had been whipped and beaten many times. He was shipwrecked three times. He had been in jail multiple times. He'd even been imprisoned in Rome before. It was there that he wrote the book of Philippians. But things are different this time. Then he was under house arrest. Then he had visitors. Then he had an ongoing ministry. This time, he's in the Mamertine prison. This time, he has no visitors. This time, he's all alone except for Luke. And how Luke got in there, I don't know. Luke was a physician. Maybe Paul had some physical matters that needed to be tended to, and they could get Luke in for that. But he says in next week's passage, Luke alone is with me. Paul knows this time he's not coming out alive. He knows that. He recognizes his days are numbered. And so we're going to see an urgency in his appeal to Timothy in verse 1. He is a dying man, and he is telling his protege what he must do. And Paul will invoke God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as witnesses as he charges Timothy to do certain things in verses 2 and 3 and 5. And then he will explain in verses 3 and 4 why those things are vitally important. And I'd like to look at this passage this morning from the perspective of the three primary characters in it. Paul, Timothy, and the church that Timothy is serving. 
I'd like for us to consider what's going on from the perspective of each of those three. And I'd like for us to work backwards from the end of the section so that we can consider Paul first, the dying man and what he sees as important, then the church second in its situation, and then finally, Timothy. And I think doing that will help us better understand the seriousness of this charge that Paul lays on Timothy in this passage. So let's start with Paul. Paul is leaving. He recognizes his days are few. And he also understands that for him it is all gain. All that he has to look forward to is gain. He has everything to look forward to. The language that he uses here, we have seen before. He spoke this way the last time he was confined in Rome. There are some echoes of his letter to the church at Philippi here as he wonders whether he will live or die. Listen to this from Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and will rejoice with all of you. Or from Philippians chapter 1, as he looks forward to heaven, he says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. That he wrote when he was under house arrest in Rome, writing to the Philippians. And we hear that language now brought forward to his present situation here in 2 Timothy. And so in verse 6, he speaks again about being poured out like a drink offering. Now, we may not be quite familiar with that, that language. Well, a food offering and a drink offering would accompany an animal sacrifice in the temple. Along with the animal for the burnt offering, the person bringing it would also bring flour and olive oil and mix them together with spices and also bring wine and pour all of that out on the altar. And it would be a, a fragrant aroma to God. Several passages in the Old Testament that give instruction for doing that. And Paul sees his life now as this drink offering that's to become a pleasing aroma to God. He's been a living sacrifice for his whole ministry, and now he will be a dying one. He speaks also in verse 6 about his departure. You can almost picture yourself at, at an airport looking at the screen to see the, the departures and to see yours coming up. Uh, Paul speaks of his departure that way. The word is used of ships in a harbor casting off their ropes and sailing out to the open sea. It's a beautiful picture. It's a voyage Paul is looking forward to. And he also has the satisfaction of being able to look back over a course well run in verse 7. He says, I've fought the good fight. 
that word for fight is, is agonizo. We get our word agony from it. I have literally agonized the good agony. But the important part is he says, I've done it. I've done it. He's been faithful to it. He's, he's gone the whole 15 rounds and, and taken the body blows all the way along. And now I have fought it. I have fought that fight. It's done. Similarly, he says, I have finished the race. It's come to an end. The same root word is a word Jesus uses from the cross. It is finished. My race is done by God's grace. I've completed the mission he's put me here to do. And then he says, I've kept the faith. I've been faithful to the call. I have done what God has commissioned me to do. I have preserved the message and guarded the good deposit. He spoke about this good deposit in 1 Timothy 6 and also in 2 Timothy 1. He's been faithful to that. He's kept it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so he can look back and say, by God's grace, he's done it. He's completed his course. He's done his part. And he can look back on it with satisfaction. And he can look ahead to see heaven waiting for him. A crown of righteousness, not earned by him, but given by Jesus. In the Olympics, uh, the winner of a race would receive a, a laurel wreath, uh, ivy twisted together to make a crown to go on his head. And he compares it to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, speaks about this, this temporary perishable wreath that Olympians give their lives to pursuing, but we get one that's not perishable. We get one that is imperishable, an imperishable crown, and he looks forward to doing with it what the elders in Revelation chapter 4 do. Are you familiar with the scene in heaven in Revelation 4 where the elders take their crowns and throw them at the feet of the one who is seated on the throne to declare him worthy and him alone? Paul has had more than his share of difficulties in this life. And his conditions at present, as he writes to Timothy, are harsh. He's awaiting his execution, but he knows he's leaving. And for him, it's all gain. And while I'm sure he is realistic enough not to say that he has no regrets, I think that he can also say that those regrets are few and they are forgiven. And he will go to his execution knowing that for him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is leaving. It's all gain for him, but he leaves with serious concerns about the church. The church is facing tough times, and someone has to pick up where Paul leaves off. So let's look next at the church in verses 3 and 4 and, and see these people who must now live through some really challenging times. Verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. For the church, it's a, a critical time. It's a critical time. Paul describes a time here as a time of designer preachers and teachers, ones that you can collect according to your own desires. 
a time when you can insist on hearing what you want to hear, a time when you can close yourself off to what you need to hear. Something the, sometimes the, the things that we need to hear aren't the things that we want to hear. Isn't that true? Sometimes the things we need to experience aren't the things we want to experience. I grew up in the pre-Bactin era. Uh, when I was a little boy, the cuts and scrapes I would get. My mom uh, didn't have Bactine. She had a thing called Merthiolate. Who remembers Merthiolate? Great stuff, huh? Uh, it came in a little bottle, you unscrew the cap, and there was this little glass rod that stuck down that would hold enough to communicate it to your scrape or scratch, and it stung like the dickens. And uh, when Bactine eventually came out, and it boasted that it didn't hurt, my mom instantly suspected it, because if it didn't hurt, it couldn't be good, right? She stuck with her merthiolate. And so what I needed, I didn't want, but I needed it all the same. And Paul describes a time here when people don't want to hear the truth anymore. A time when people want to hear myths, and so they surround themselves with people who will give them what they want and not what they need. It's a hard time he's describing. An old song from the 60s said, it's all lies and jests till a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. It's the kind of time Paul's describing here, and it fits the time that we're living in today. In the marketplace of ideas today, there are a lot of options out there. We have choices to make, way more choices than Paul and Timothy could ever have imagined. We've got choices at our fingertips of the things that we want to listen to, pay attention to. Many of the ideas we're presented with these days are wrapped up in Scripture, rightly or wrongly, by very smart people. And so it takes a lot of discernment to know what's true and what's false, what's helpful and what's not. And we face an enemy who understands the old tactic of divide and conquer. And he's dividing brothers and sisters in Christ these days as though we were enemies. There's an old joke about two guys who met on a bridge. And it's told from the perspective of one of them. Here's what he says. Once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, good, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too, what denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too, um, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Baptist Conservative, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. 
Now, I hear some laughter, but I, I wonder if some of you are sitting there in shock going, that is not funny at all. I, but I share it because 40 years ago when I heard it for the first time, the place busted up. Everybody thought it was so funny because it was so ridiculous and far-fetched. But we're living in a time when we see divisions more finely tuned than that. We're living in a time when there are behaviors that are terribly harsh. The Christians give to one another. It's a critical time for the church as it was in Timothy's day. We need to be wise to the enemy's schemes. So Paul is leaving and the church is in peril. Can you understand why Paul would give Timothy a very, very serious charge in verse 1 in a time like that? Good leadership is vitally important, and Timothy has to step up to it. So now let's consider Timothy, the one who now has to lead through the difficulties. And let's consider along with him the charge that Paul gives him. For Timothy, it's mission first. Mission first. Look at verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 5. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 5 as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For Timothy, it's mission first. One of the lessons I learned early on in the military is that mission always has to come first. In the army, we had what was called a five-paragraph field order. It was a handy format. It's used all the time. It's been used for generations, situation, mission, execution, logistics, and command and control. And it all revolves around the mission. The situation talks about what you're going to be, what, what conditions you'll be conducting the mission in. The mission is a succinct statement of what you're going to accomplish. The execution speaks about how you're going to do it, the logistics, the beans and bullets that you're going to need to get it done, and command and control talking about... Um, passwords and uh, the like, and, and who is going to take over if the number one leader falls. It all revolves around the mission. Mission accomplishment is the only thing that matters. There may be casualties, but the mission has to go forward and be accomplished. And it's no different here as Paul gives Timothy a clear charge that is absolutely mission-centered. Paul underscores the importance of his charge in verse 1. Look at it again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Those are really serious words from the mentor to the protege. Our English word charge it shows up seven times in 1 Timothy and twice in 2 Timothy, but it translates different Greek words, actually. The Greek word that's used here for charge, I charge you, 
shows up just three times in First and Second Timothy. First uh, Timothy five twenty one, Second Timothy two fourteen, and here and those three are listed in your further thought section. You'll have opportunity to grapple with those later. But the root of the word suggests invoking someone as a witness. Um, the Greek word uh, martyrios, uh, we get our word martyr, means witness. And that's, that's the root of this word charge. And, and the way witness ties into that is this. Paul is invoking God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son to witness the charge he is giving Timothy. It is really serious. Paul sees God the Father and Jesus the Son looking on as he gives this charge to Timothy. He reminds him Jesus will be the judge of the living and the dead. It's a reminder that we're dealing with people's eternal destinies here. We're not playing games. We can't be monkeying around. Eternal destinies are on the line. And he charges Timothy by two things, Jesus appearing and Jesus' kingdom. Those two. Paul speaks in verse 8 of those who have loved his appearing. Same word. Those who are looking forward to Christ's appearing. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking about the return of Christ. And he's saying that event is certain. The time is coming. And when it happens, it's going to be too late for those who haven't put their faith in Christ. And so he charges Timothy in light of that. And then Paul, as he does it, is also keenly aware of the judgment that will take place at the return of Christ and the kingdom that people will miss out on if they haven't put their trust in him. Those things, Paul says, are certainties. They're coming. And so there's an urgency to Paul's charge This is for keeps, and the time is short. James says the judge is at the door. And in the verses that follow, Paul charges Timothy to do several things. And as we look at those things, we're going to see that these are not all things that Timothy would feel fully equipped to do. But it doesn't matter, because the church needs him to do them. The mission depends on it. So, Here's the charge, verse 2 and verse 5. In those verses, Paul gives nine imperatives for Timothy. And the first and foremost is preach the word. Preach the word. That one uh, overshadows all the rest. It's the umbrella that everything else fits under. Preach the word. The mission is about getting a message out. It's about God's word, his revelation of himself to humankind. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, you are a herald of that message. The message isn't about you. It's not even from you. It's from someone else. And you need to be faithful to announce this message given from God. Preach the word. And second, he says, be ready. Be ready. Uh, There's an urgency to this message. People will go to hell without it. So stand despite opposition. Be ready in season and out of season. 
in favorable times and in unfavorable times, when your message is well-received and when it isn't, when you feel like it and when you don't, be ready with that message. The next three go together, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. People need one or another of these from time to time. And we need to figure out which one to use. And we need to bring it faithfully. Reproving has to do with pointing out an error. And it's hard to do in an age when people don't want to hear it. Uh, when you point out somebody's error, how often do they say to you, thanks, I needed that? It's a little rare these days. I'm reminded of Proverbs 28:23 that says, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. And I notice Solomon wisely uses the word afterward. Afterward, he will find more favor with that guy than the person who flatters him. At the time, though, might not find any favor at all. But it's what Timothy needs to do. Some will respond well, others won't. Rebuking has to do with calling out those who don't respond well to the reproof. Call them out, he says. And exhorting has to do with coming alongside who, those who do respond well to it to help show them the right way. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And how we do it is important. He says do it patiently, not angrily. We come alongside someone. We don't come at them. He says we do it with a goal of teaching, not just condemning. Show people the bigger picture. Show them the whole counsel of God. And the charge continues in verse 5 where Paul says, Be sober-minded, level-headed, keep on an even keel, don't get carried away by emotion. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering, he says. And this theme has been repeated throughout the letter. And in fact, just in the previous section, in verse 12, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. It's coming. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist, Paul says. Did you notice he didn't make mention of whether Timothy was one or not? He probably wasn't, but all the same, he was to do the work of an evangelist because the church needed it. And he says, at the end of it all, fulfill your ministry. And that word for ministry is diakonia. We get deacon from it. It means service. Fulfill your service. You are a servant, so serve. Do your job, Timothy. All of the things that Paul has mentioned here are things that he has done faithfully over the course of his entire ministry. And now as he prepares to exit the scene, he wants to charge Timothy with taking the baton and running with it himself. Those same things still need to be done. Now, we've been getting acquainted with Timothy for quite some time now. We've been all the way through 1 Timothy, we're almost all the way through 2 Timothy. So you know Timothy fairly well. How many of those imperatives that Paul has just given him would Timothy say he is well suited to do? 
For how many of them do you think he could honestly say, sorry, that's not my gift? Reproving, rebuking, evangelizing. I would think he would say of all of those and maybe more, I'm sorry, I'm not well suited for that. These are things Paul knew needed to be done. And Paul would no longer be on the scene to do them. They would fall to Timothy whether he felt gifted to do them or not. We're living in a time when people um, have spiritual gift inventories to, to help them understand what their spiritual gifts are so they can find a place of service that's fruitful and fulfilling. It's not a bad idea to find out what your spiritual gift is and figure out how to use it. But do you know that nowhere in Scripture are we told that we need to discover our spiritual gift? Instead, we're just told consistently to take up the basin and the towel and start serving. Find a need and fill it. Ministries go vacant, needs go unaddressed, because people can say, I'm sorry, it's not my gift, and walk away. Timothy wasn't given that option. Instead, he was given a solemn charge based on a mission that needed to be carried out, a mission he needed to get on board with and to faithfully execute and then pass along to another generation who in turn would pass it along to another generation who ultimately would pass it along to us. There were no excuses for not doing the mission, no accumulating designer preachers and teachers who say what we want to hear, just faithfulness to the truth and to the mission of sharing the news that a Savior has come to offer reconciliation with God based on the penalty he took on himself for the guilt of our sin, one that he paid in full so we don't have to. That's our mission. Preach that word. And I would ask you this morning, have you responded to that message yourself? Have you put your trust in the Savior who died to take on himself the guilt of your sin? And if you have not, you can do that before you leave this place. And I would urge you, don't leave here without knowing that you stand forgiven and reconciled with a holy God because of what Jesus did on your behalf. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I want you to apply that to my account. I am the guilty one. You are the one who suffered and died in my place, and I want that applied to my account. Forgive me. Restore me to relationship with the Father. Live in me, and I will live for you. Last week, we saw Paul warning Timothy that difficult times would accompany this period of history called the last days. Timothy was living in one of those difficult times, and I believe we are living in another of those difficult times. I haven't seen a more difficult time in my 40 years of ministry. We're dealing with a pandemic We're dealing with political unrest. We're dealing with social unrest. We're dealing with racial unrest. We're dealing with economic uncertainty. We're dealing with nations rattling sabers and firing missiles. 
Uh, we are dealing with rhetoric that is ramping up on all sides. We need to be wise to the schemes of the enemy who wants to divide us, who wants to set us against one another, who wants us to lose sight of our mission. So, in light of Christ's appearing and his kingdom, I exhort us all to focus on the mission God has given us to reach lost people with the message of his grace and forgiveness. That's what we are here for. And a dying man named Paul would tell us it's all that really matters. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would impress upon us by your spirit the urgency of the mission that has been handed down to us. A mission that Paul saw as critically urgent that he needed to pass on to Timothy. A mission we are so grateful that Timothy took up the mantle and lived that out, whether he felt gifted to or not. A mission that we are so grateful that others through the course of these last 2,000 years have taken up so that we could hear the message of salvation ourselves. Let us, Lord, be faithful to that mission ourselves, that others might hear and know that a Savior has come, that they can know forgiveness as well. Father, I just pray that you would embolden us, empower us, bless those who go out this afternoon calling on people to share that message. Help us throughout the week to share it as well. A dying world needs to hear it. Help us to be bold to share it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.